Let's open our Bibles to the book of Psalms. We're just going to do one chapter this evening, and I'll tell you why. We could spend a week in Psalm 2 very easily. Uh, Psalm 3 through 7 is unique in that they're devotional prayers of David. And then once we get to uh, Psalm 8 again, we have another um, messianic prophetic psalm. We gave an introduction last week, connected the book of Job with, with um, the book of Psalms, and we made, it through, <laughs> we made it through the first chapter, and I got through six verses. And um, there's so much that's in Psalm 2, and uh, in light of a lot of the current events that are taking place, um, I just thought we'd take our time. I would like to next week get through three through seven, because that's also a, um, a continuing thought. But let's um, look at Psalm 2, and um, I'm going to read it and then come back, and we'll dissect it and come back to um, a lot of cross-references. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in heaven will laugh, and the Lord will hold them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion, I will declare the decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. And be instructed, you judges of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. And when his wrath is kindled but a little, and blessed are those who put their trust in him. So contrasting thoughts, just like we had in Psalm 1, first three verses of Psalm 1, contrasted with the second three. The man who is blessed, he'll prosper. Whatever he does, the Lord will bless it eventually. Some way turn it to the good. Uh, those that don't, uh, the ungodly will perish. And we sort of had the same thought as we get through with chapter 2. And I'll close with that tonight. But we're going to make our way slowly through this particular um, one because it really deals with the establishing of the Lord's kingdom. And uh, Sunday, I've entitled Until Then, so we're sort of in the in-between right now. The Lord will establish his kingdom. Uh, That will happen. We call it the millennial reign or the kingdom reign. It's your future. It's my future. Um, It's one thing you can bank on for sure, that the Lord's kingdom is coming. And um, he put up roadblocks, not roadblocks, road signs to... um, Tell us, as we get closer to those times, what will be unfolding in the world. So as we look at verse 1, why do the nations rage? And they're plotting something. They're plotting something that's futile, vanity. Um, Really, uh, it's, it's ludicrous is what it is when you think about it. Because the kings of the earth plot... And they set themselves as rulers, and they're taking counsel together. In other words, they're talking amongst themselves. Against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Um, This actually is taking us into the book of Revelation. It talks about demons being released at the Euphrates River. Uh, that go and gather together the kings of the east. And this is part of what this is saying right here. The book of Revelation should be taken literally, never symbolically. It means what it says and says what it means to the point. 
that the Lord says, faithful and true are these words. That's how he begins it. But then how he ends the book of Revelation, he says, be careful you don't mess with it at the same time. Make sure you don't add to it. Make sure you don't take away from it. Because if you do add to it or take away from it, then I'll add on to that person who's teaching otherwise the plagues that are written in the book. So an understanding of the book of Daniel is essential, understanding to understand the book of Revelation. But what we have here in Psalm 2, we just started the Psalms, and right away we have prophecy. And we don't get past the first one, and all of a sudden we're talking about the Lord's coming, but what's going to precede his kingdom are the kings of the earth actually getting together and plotting what is one, what's more foolish than <laughs> human beings uh, with material weapons trying to destroy the creator of the universe. He who sits in heaven will laugh, verse 4. The Lord will hold them in derision, and then he's going to speak to them in his wrath. That's Revelation 6, the last verse, where it says that's the time the wrath of the Lamb has come. It's not just a particular day, it's a seven-year period of time that uh, is laid out in the book of Revelation. Well, let's dive in. Like I said, we're going to wade through this and, and tie together um, what precedes the second coming of Jesus Christ. Not to be confused with the rapture. We're not talking about the rapture right now. We're talking about the worldly kings that come against the Lord at the battle of Armageddon. Good place to start is in the book of Isaiah, chapter 63. So let's make our way over there. My title, subtitle to this is The Vengeance of God. The Bible tells us that God is not slack concerning his promises, as some men call it slackness. He's being patient, and he's in not willing that any should perish. But we should never mistake the Lord's patience with this planet and with people as a sign of his weakness or otherwise. Vengeance is the Lord. He will repay. And there, the time is when the Lord is going to come. We read in Revelation that uh, the Lord is going to give the Antichrist just so much time, three and a half years. And um, he's allotted a certain amount of time. And when he returns at the end of that time, this is the setting. This is Isaiah chapter 63. And I want to look at the first six verses, and then I'll come back and talk about and tie together where, where this is taking place. Hypothetical question. Who is this who comes from Edom? Let's put up on the map. I want to show you guys where Edom is and where Basra is in particular because it plays into um, what is happening um, to the remnant that are going to be in Basra. And uh, let's read, uh, we'll just leave that up for right now and I'll tie it in in just a second. But it starts with the question, who is this anyway who has his uh, garments, the one who is glorious in his apparel? The uh, garments we're going to find out are, are bathed in blood. Traveling in the greatness of his strength, I who spoke in righteousness mighty to save. And why is your apparel red? And your garments like one who treads out the winepress. I've asked Mary today to, to, to get for, together for Sunday the battle hymn of the Republic. Because in it, it contains these words. And um, uh, that's where the lyrics come from, from the battle hymn, of, battle hymn of the Republic. Why is your garments look like they've been treaded out in a winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. I have trodden them in my anger. And in my fury, their blood is sprinkled upon my garments. And I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart. And the year of my redeemed has come. Two different statements there. The day of his vengeance, his wrath has come. And um, just quickly keep your finger there just so you know where this is going to tie in. Go to Revelation 6 quickly. 
and I'll show you where this dovetails in with the very beginning of the tribulation period. Chapter 1 is just a revelation to John. Chapters 2 and 3 are the church age. 4 and 5 is a picture of the church in heaven and the Lord taking and laying claim to that which he purchased on Calvary. But when you begin chapter 6, you're beginning that seven-year period of time that's really summed up in verse 17, for it says, The great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Well, this is just one of the phrases that we use to describe the next seven years. Let me just give you a couple other ones. It's called Daniel's 70th week. You will not understand this book unless you understand Daniel really well, especially the ninth chapter that divides it into a seven-year period of time. That would be Daniel 9, verse 27. And, excuse me, uh, the day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. In verse 16, just so we are clear, who's bringing his wrath Um, the kings of the earth say, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. Now this is going to be a part of our study tonight. Uh, The Lord sitting on his throne, sitting on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath, whose wrath? The Lord. So he came the first time humbly, lowly, on a donkey, came to be a servant of men, came to heal the brokenhearted, People who couldn't see, he gave sight. People who couldn't walk, he gave them that capacity. He only went around doing good. And the only problem he really had was with the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, which I will show you in just a little bit. Let's go back to Isaiah 63. The day of vengeance. When the Lord comes, he comes, and what I wanted to point out here before I take you to... uh, uh, 63, where he's, it says he comes from Eden, go to verse 1, and from Basra. Well, when we go to Israel, a place called Basra there is just a little south and east of the Dead Sea. We know this place as also Petra. The next picture that we'll put up here, when we Googled this today, the the pictures were coincided with each other. And um, in Matthew chapter 24, In the very, very middle of that seven-year period of time, Jesus tells his people, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, not to be confused with what happened in 164 B.C. with Antioch Epiphanes, who is simply a type of the Antichrist. Jesus goes past that, and he goes right back to Daniel. And he says, "Um, as was spoken by Daniel the prophet, then run and flee because now there's coming a time that's going to be so terrible upon the earth that unless the Son of Man comes, like we're reading right here, unless he directly intervenes in world history, no flesh is going to be saved because it's the time of his wrath. And um, uh, that is uh, one of the famous shots that you see when you visit um, Petra, and it's that rock city, I believe, where... Oh, where else could we go to um, just tack on to that? Go back to chapter 16, as long as we're here. Not in my notes, but it does tie in. Isaiah 16. This is also a reference. Here, it's more of a reference to... um, the people who are on the run, where Isaiah 63 is more a reference to the Lord himself. In chapter 16, it says, Send the lamb to the, to the rulers of the land from Selah. Selah is another name for Petra, to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughters of Zion. For it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest. A very poetic picture of, um, of being cast out of the land of Israel. They're fleeing. Uh, so shall be the daughters of Moab at the forbes of the Aaron. So he tells them, take counsel, execute judgment. Make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. And interesting, hide the outcast. Do not betray him who escapes. He's talking about Israel and those who are fleeing from, from the Antichrist. 
Again, in Revelation chapter 12, this is spoken about when the Antichrist goes after Israel as they go into this place of hiding. And hide my outcasts, let them be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. Now the reference here would be another name. If you do a word study on the Antichrist, you'll find he has a lot of different names. Uh, Here's one of them right here, the spoiler. Hide them from the face of the spoiler. For the extortioner is at an end, devastation ceases, the oppressors are consumed out of the land. In mercy, the Lord will be established, the throne will be established, and the one who will sit on it in truth at the tabernacle of David, judgment and seeking justice, hastening judgment. So uh, they're told to hide them from the from the, um, the spoiler, and that would be a reference to, to the Antichrist. All right, so let's turn from here and take you to Revelation chapter 20. Let's turn there. Revelation 20 is a culmination of the kingdom of man, If it's one thing we learned in in Daniel, it talks about all the kingdoms of the world, uh, starting with Babylon and then going to the uh, Medo-Persian, to the Grecian, to the Roman. Hasn't been a world empire since then. There is one forming right now. And both in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, it has one basic thought. Here's all the kingdoms that have ever been. But then they see the stone that comes out of nowhere, and it strikes the image, which is, represents all these earthly kingdoms, and uh, no more kingdom of man. Out of it comes one kingdom that rises up. And it tells us in Daniel 2, it'll be an everlasting kingdom when he comes. So if you want to take Daniel's perspective, the, the stone being cut that's going to come and smite the kingdoms of this world, um, it's another way of looking at the Battle of Armageddon. Isaiah 63, when the Lord comes in these garments that are stained in blood, he's coming to establish his kingdom. And he's been patient and he's waited and kingdoms have come and kingdoms have gone. But this is the one that's going to abide and remain forever. This is the one we're praying for. So no matter how dark and desperate and gloomy things look, no, no. This is, this is just trying and testing time. That's what we're going through right now. You're being tried, you're being tested. And if you're faithful, the Lord says, in the little things, then he will cause you to be over more responsibility in the kingdom. So everything that we go through now on this is all a test. How are you going to react? How are you going to be re- respond when the pressure's on? Are you going to keep going? Well, if you're faithful in just the little things, then he says, I'll give you more responsibility in the kingdom. So here it comes. Here we are in Revelation 20. We're at the end of this seven-year period of time. And we have, in verse 11, we'll pick it up here, that I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges, and he makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written which no one knew except he himself. He was clothed, notice, with a robe dipped in blood. Now he should be making the connections back to Isaiah chapter 63. Who is this who's coming out of Basra? Well, what's he doing in Basra in the first place? Well, remember, Jesus said, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those were his closing words to Israel. And Israel has to go through this three-and-a-half-year period of time. Great pressure is put on them. Two things are accomplished in the the second three-and-a-half years of the tribulation. People are forced to choose. And right now, you don't have to choose. You can be indifferent, say, I'll think about it later, or I'll decide some other time. Not during the tribulation. If you don't take the mark of the beast, you don't eat, and you die on top of it. That's your choice. And so everything is pressurized, if you will, during this last three and a half years. And you're forced to make a decision. Which side are you on? And the warning back in 14, you can just stay there. I'll just read it real quick. 
when all the witnesses are killed, the Lord still has one witness, and that's angels themselves, that, um, uh, let's pick it up, the third angel, chapter 14, Another angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen. The third angel followed, saying with a loud voice, If anybody worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself will also drink notice of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out in full strength into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So that's a pretty heavy indictment coming straight from an angelic creature. Uh, And then going back to chapter 20, we left off with um, his garment is dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. So there's no doubt who we're talking about here. That would be, according to John 1, uh, the Word became flesh as none other than Jesus. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And so this is um, a reference to the saints coming with them. The Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. You know, not much of a fighter. But uh, this is one, if we get to be involved with it, Isaiah pretty much lays it out that he fights this one alone. We just seem to be along for the ride, it looks like. But the Lord does return with 10,000 of his saints. And, you know, here you are going into a battle. It's already over before you get there. We've read already what's going to take place. It could be a reference to the angelic realm, the armies of heaven. He is um, in Joshua, the commander of the host of the armies of the Lord. And then we're told in verse 15, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. With it he should strike the nations that he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself, notice, treads the winepress, there's Isaiah again, of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he had on his robe and on his thigh a name written, who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, again, this is in contrast to all the other kingdoms that have been on planet Earth. They're going to have their time. Everything is set precisely. I mean, right down to the day, this will happen 1,290 days after the abomination of desolation, according to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel tells you to the day Jesus will come the first time. Well, it also tells you to the day he's going to come the second time. And that's, if you want to do your homework on that, that's Daniel chapter 12. It gives you the time. When he comes... He says, I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, this would be the Antichrist, the kings of the earth and their armies, gathered together to make war against him. Well, now you're back in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do the kings plot this vain thing, this futile thing, that they're going to fight against the creator of the universe when he's coming in his wrath? And um, they come to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So what you want to keep in view, this goes far back all the way to Psalm 2 that this is a prophecy. And we're just filling in more information in the New Testament. The beast was captured along with the false prophet. The false prophet is a type of John the Baptist, sort of a a forerunner for the Antichrist, a counterfeit, and um, who works signs in the presence, which deceive those who receive the mark of the beast and those who worship the image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with fire and brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So let's bounce back and tie some things together before we go on to Psalm 110. But I want to just take you right back to Psalm 2, 
And reading with what we've read thus far, Psalm 2 begins with, Why do the nations rage? They plot this vain thing. This is, again, in reference to the, um, uh, these demon creatures gathering together the kings of the east, and they gather together in a place that's called Megiddo. And this is where the battle takes place. It's really a battle that never happens. Everybody says there's been whole movies made with Bruce Willis called Armageddon, you know, either going up in a spacecraft to blow up some asteroid so Armageddon doesn't happen, or, or the war of all wars is Armageddon. No, the, the battle of Armageddon is over pretty quick. I mean, he speaks in his wrath, and that's pretty much it. It's over when he, when he speaks. They're gathered there, but when he speaks in his wrath... Um, then it's over very, very quickly. So as we look at Psalm 2, verse 1, what you have is yet future. It is um, laying out in small detail what we have more information now when we have the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. And then Jesus really telling you, you have to, whoever reads, let them understand, you have to understand Matthew 24 and what is being prophesied in Daniel to get a full picture of a seven-year period of time that God is dealing just with the Jewish people during this time. And um, that their attitude is that we want to break free in verse 3. And the Lord is the one who comes, and it's pretty much the end of them. All right, let's pick it up in 7 through 9. He says, I will... Declare the decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. All right, not, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but this is a Jehovah Witness verse. And the whole idea of Jesus being begotten, you go, see here, yeah, Jesus is um, not the triune God, but that he was begotten, he was, they take this verse and take it out of context. And, um, you know, it can be proven wrong from Genesis 1 to John 1. And I think we went through the ones a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, with, with um, Colossians 1 and Romans 1 and all the ones that declare that Jesus Christ is a creator. And he's, he's coexisted throughout all eternity with the Father. The Father and the Son are one. What we have in view here is that they take this one verse out of context. That's why when you're doing Bible study and Bible interpretation, we always say context is everything. Well, what context are you reading that in? Are there other scriptures that would contradict that and bring more clarity to it? In this case, absolutely. In the beginning, Elohim, plural. Verse 26, Genesis 1:26. let us, plural, make God in our image. John, John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. And... Um, all things were created by him and for him. He is the, the creator. So don't let that throw you. Um, also, when um, we visit Israel, we go to the Temple Mount, and on the Dome of the Rock in Arabic, they, they do, do blasphemy to what I just quoted here because one of the things it says in Arabic is God does not beget, nor is he begotten. Care if I do a little sidetrack here? I mean, it's not like me to do that, but do you guys care if I do, do a little sidetrack? I ran out of time on Sunday. I wanted to talk about ISIS a little bit more because what they, they stated on, there's a whole article, like you can just Google this, just Google ISIS and Mecca. Just Google that, and it, it, the article will come up. And um, they stated on uh, the first of this month, that their next goal is to march on Saudi Arabia and primarily Mecca. And they want to destroy the black stone that's there, the Kaaba, or they call it, this meteorite that fell, where every Muslim has to go on a pilgrimage to make sure he gets there. And they, they go round and round the, the tradition. Well, they're upset because they don't believe that... Uh, uh, the purity of being a Muslim would include worshiping any stone. So they want it gone. 
Well, if that's true and if that's their goal and that's their agenda, there's another place that Muslims go and they worship a stone. Anybody want to tell me where that is? Yeah, it's a Temple Mount. It's called the Dome of the what? The Rock, the Dome of the Rock. They teach that Muhammad went there and it was from that place that he went into heaven. How do they know? They found a piece of hair that was belonging to Muhammad. I know, it is foolish, I know. But nonetheless, it opens up a whole other realm of possibility of um, what could happen to the Dome of the Rock. And uh, we don't know what's going to happen. But it's interesting to me that Google the article yourself. You can just pick it up. Again, I had, it was lengthy, and that's why I didn't get around to it on Sunday. But there's a lot happening um, uh, with that, and they do mock the Lord with the Dome of the Rock, and they, it actually says in Arabic, God does not beget, nor is he begotten. All right, let's go on. Uh, ask of me, so we have a conversation going on between the Father and the Son. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, and you will dash them in pieces like potter's vessels. Well, Revelation 20 says he speaks in his wrath, and they're consumed by the sword of his mouth. So this breaking and this judgment that takes place, here we're having a conversation where the Lord said to my Lord, you are my son. I want you to turn at this time, and we're going to spend... Some time in Psalm 110. So let's just go over there. Psalm 110. And I'm just going to look at verse 1 for starters, and then we're going to come back to it and read the rest of it. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We have the heavenly scene. We have the Father sitting on the throne. Again, in Revelation 5, we see this. But here we have a conversation. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. I've entitled Sunday's message, Until Then. It's implying a gap of time. Sit, son, until I bring everything together, and then I'm going to make your enemies your footstool, and the kingdom that's all the way throughout the Old Testament, all the promises of the messianic kingdom that's to come, that's what the disciples were arguing over. Who's the greatest? Lord, can I be prime minister? Can I be secretary of state? They had to pull him aside and say, listen, if you want to be great, learn to be servant of all. If you want to be great in that kingdom, then you've got to learn how to serve in this kingdom. So somebody's got to give me an amen on that one. That's just the way it is. It's not the other way around. It's not... It's not the Amway Pyramid where you build up and get everybody. No, it's just the opposite of that, and you do it the other way around. We're the servants now. And so here, we're until then. We are simply to be faithful to the Lord, keep the faith. When you're having a tough day, get into a Bible study, sit down, spend some time in prayer, realize that it's not going to get better, it's going to get harder. And the Bible teaches that in some strange way that encourages me just knowing it. So at least I know what I'm in for. So it's going to get darker instead of better. The Middle East is not going to get calmer. It's going to get more unfrazzled, according to scriptures. And we're watching that right now. I mentioned in the introduction that of the 257 times that verses are quoted in the New Testament from the Old Testament, over 150 of them come from the book of Psalms. And I'm going to show you one of them here right now, and I'm going to have you turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 22. So let's turn to Matthew 22. I'll give you a little bit of this background. Oh, they were having a hard time pinning Jesus down. And um, again, (laughs) if we read in Psalm 2, he who is in heaven will laugh and hold him in derision. Can you, can you imagine trying to trap God? Just think about it. He knows what you're going to say before you say it. There's nothing that he doesn't know. Talk about an exercise in futility, trying to trap Jesus Christ. 
And so most of this chapter 22 is exactly that. Um, I'm not going to go through all of them, but if you pick it up in verse 15, you sort of get the feel that they're trying, the Pharisees now are trying to pin the Lord into a corner. It says they were plotting how they might entangle him in his talk. Now that to me is funny when, they, when you realize who you're talking to. And so they said, now teacher, we know that you, what you teach is true. You teach the way of God and truth and you don't really care about anyone for you do not regard the persons of a man. You're not a respecter of persons. Tell us, therefore, what do you think about paying taxes? Um, should we or shouldn't we? And he knew he would, this was a setup. And he says, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me some money. And so they showed him a denarii, and he said, whose picture is on it? Whose image is on it? They said, Caesar's. And he says, all right, then give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and give to God what's God's. And he had him right there. They couldn't say another word. When they heard these words, they marveled. And they left him and they went away. They, had, they, they couldn't answer his question and they were afraid to ask another one. All right, that takes care of the Pharisees. What about the Sadducees? They were, they were different. It would be like, not quite like the Republicans and the Democrats. <laughs> but they were different, okay? Uh, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection and angels. The Sadducees didn't believe in either. And the old joke is, that's why they're sad, you see, because they don't believe that. That's really an old one. You've heard it many times. The same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him. Now they got their hypothetical. And they wanted to make the Lord look foolish with what they knew about the Old Testament law. And so they threw this hypothetical out to him, and they said, well, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring from his brother. Uh, now there, there were with us there were seven brothers, and the first one died after he had married, and he didn't have any kids, and he left his wife to his brother. But he died too, and so did the third, and so did the fourth, and so did the fifth, and so did the sixth, and so did the seventh. For they all had the same woman, and then they said, therefore, in the resurrection, which, by the way, we don't believe in, and we're just making a fool out of you right now, Jesus, if they're in the resurrection, then whose wife of the seven will they be? For they all had her. And I like this. Jesus said, you guys are mistaken. First of all, you don't know the scriptures, number one. Number two, you don't know the power of God. For in the resurrection... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like angels of God in heaven. So their thinking is, when they get to heaven, whose wife is she going to have? He's been on, had all seven of them. He says, you guys don't know what you're talking about. That's not the way it works when we're, you have your resurrected body. You neither marry nor are you given in marriage. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, that's what you guys are really trying to trap me with. Have you not read what is spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, I am the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. All right, check off the Pharisees, check off the Sadducees. Now we come to the Pharisees are sort of impressed how he handled the Sadducees. So they come back and the Sadducees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said, You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. If you take nothing home with you tonight, take that home with you, because nothing else really matters. If you don't have this one down, it doesn't matter what else you're doing, according to 1 Corinthians 13. Do you want to give me an amen on that? If you don't have the love, then you're a tingling bell and a sounding cymbal. Just clanging away. doesn't really matter. Paul said, it's the love of Christ that constrains me to do what I do. And I hope you're being a Christian simply because you love the Lord and you're grateful for your salvation. That's why you're doing what you're doing. That's what it boils down to. So what's the greatest one? Hasn't changed. This is the first and this is the greatest commandment. And the second is like it, you will love your neighbor as yourself. That's a tough one because we really love ourselves a lot. And we do. 
You know, love your neighbor like you love yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. Now, we could go to Romans right now, and I could list the commandments, but he's, again, he gets into the necessity of love when, it, when he tells you on this, all are the laws and the prophets. Well, when you love God first, you're not interested in stealing your neighbor's lawnmower because you love him. Are you tracking with me? If you don't love him, you're looking to take advantage of him. But if you love him, well, then you really want him to understand what you have. If you love him and you want to be able to just share Christ with him and um, how the Lord has worked in your life. So you will honor your father and your mother if you're putting the Lord first. And you won't steal and you won't commit adultery. Why? Because you're simply in love with the Lord. It just naturally falls in. Owe no man anything, we're told, except to love one another. For in that, it's all taken care of. You do that one, and it naturally just sort of clicks together, and, and you're just loving the Lord, and you, you don't have to worry about it's the fulfillment of all the commandments. All right, all that to set you up for verse 41, because this is what we're quoting now from Psalm 110. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, let me ask you guys a question. So they're huddled up again. They go, oh, we don't know how to answer this guy. And while they're doing that, Jesus says, well, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now he's asking the questions. And they said to him, well, he's the son of David. And then he said, well, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said, now we're quoting Psalm 110, verse 1. How then can David in the spirit say, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. You see, if David then calls him Lord, how then could he be his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anybody else dare ask him any more questions. Sadducees, check them off. Pharisees, check them off. Pharisees jump back in the picture after the Sadducees are checked off. And then while they're planning stage three, he says, let me ask you guys a question. And he put them in a corner, and there's no way he could answer it. McGee adds to it by saying this, David calls Messiah my Lord. And any Jew who admitted Messiah was David's descendant was faced with this psalm, Psalm 110. When David calls Messiah his Lord and claims that he is superior this shows that the Messiah would be more than a king who would be more than a political ruler upon a throne. Also, since David called him Lord in this psalm, how can he be his son? The Lord cannot be his son by natural birth. It had to be by supernatural birth. The psalm is telling us that the Lord Jesus Christ, Israel's Messiah, was virgin born. The Lord said unto my Lord, this is equal speaking to equal. This is God speaking to God. The Lord said to my Lord. This is God speaking to God. And if we would tie in Hebrews 1.13, that's where we're going to be on Sunday. It says, To which of the angels said he at any time, Sit at my right hand till I make thine enemies your footstool. That's Hebrews. This sets forth the deity of Jesus Christ, it cannot be given to us in any stronger fashion. Sorry, Jehovah Witnesses. He's not begotten. He's not a son. He is equal, co-equal to the Creator. And this is what the Lord <laughs> lays on the Pharisees. He says, let me ask you a question. Whose son is he? And they, from that, from that point on, they dared not ask any more questions. Back to Psalm 110. Told you we are going to make our way slowly through Psalm 2. Let's read the rest of this This. Two through seven. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion and rule in the midst of your enemies. This is now the kingdom being established. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauty of holiness from the womb of the morning. What a beautiful poetic way of describing the reign of our Lord. You have the dew of your youth. And the Lord has sworn 
and he's not going to change his mind or repent or relent, you're a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, every priest, according to the law, was after Aaron in the tribe of Levi. You couldn't be a priest, a Cohen or whatever, unless you were a Levite. But the Lord is saying here, I'm not going to have you be uh, order of a priest after the Levites, but after the quarter of a guy whose name is Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. There we are again in Psalm 2 and Revelation 20. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the place with dead bodies, a reference to the valley of Megiddo, where it says the blood after that, after the Lord speaks, comes up to a horse's bridle. And that, I've seen the vantage point, that, that valley. You can see from one, you can see from the Mediterranean all the way over to where Nazareth is. And the valley that lies in between is the valley of Megiddo. He shall execute the heads of many countries. Well, these are the kings of the east that are plotting this vain thing from Psalm 2. He who is in heaven shall laugh. And he shall drink of the brook by the wayside, therefore he shall lift up the head. I'm going to have you turn um, at this time (coughs) to the book of Hebrews, and let's talk a little bit about Melchizedek. Most of you don't know that Mel Christ's real name is Melchizedek, and we just call him Mel for short. Now, most of you don't know that. But his real name is Melchizedek. And so you can call him Melchizedek from now on after tonight. Say, we know, we know that's a, a mouthful. Oh, I'm in trouble now. <laughs> All right. Hebrews. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 5. Let's pick it up in uh, verse 6. What, if you're writing to the Hebrews and you're persuading, persuading them that Jesus is the Messiah, well, you have a problem. Because Jesus is of the line of the tribe of Judah, and here is being taught that he's going to be a priest. Well, he's from the line of Judah. How can he be an everlasting priest? So the writer of Hebrews, who I believe is the Apostle Paul, has to address it. He has to address the issue of the priesthood, of where the Messiah is going to come from. So verse 5, chapter 5. The, Ari, uh, the priesthood from Aaron, let's go back to verse 1. It tells us, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. He could have compassion on those who are ignorant and gone astray, since he himself is also beset by weaknesses. Because of this, He is required as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sin. So Aaron was a man, and he didn't get started on the right foot being high priest. His first act while Moses was up on the mountain was to take all the gold and turn it into a golden calf. That was his first assignment. And when Moses called him out, comes down and says, what's this? Golden calf. He said, I don't know, I, people brought me this gold and I just took it and threw it in the fire and out popped this golden image. Nice one. <laughs> That's like the dog ate my homework type story, if you ask me. So the idea that he was a man who had to have atonement for himself before he could perform his duties. So the high priest, Anyan Kapoor, once a year, would go through a very elaborate purification which you needed the ashes of the red heifer for, which they just claimed to have found. And the only rabbi qualified in the world to say whether it is or isn't is Rabbi Haim Richman, who I've known for 30 years now. He'll make the call. And uh, that's the, the buzz that's out there right now. They haven't, disc- they haven't thought it out yet, which is surprising, because usually by now they have. We've been talking about the ashes of the red heifer for many, many years. And some of you really don't know what I'm talking about right now, do you? So let me just tell you why that's important. The the ashes of the red heifer were necessary in the purification ritual for the high priest. And so you had to have the ashes. Uh, And usually what they did was pass them on perpetually. Well, we don't know. We haven't found the Ark of the Covenant. Neither have we found the perpetual ashes from the red heifer. Are you still tracking with me? Okay, so you need a red heifer. Well, we have one. 
And you can Google that too. Um, matter of fact, I was reading um, an article by Bill Koning today, and he was talking with Jan Markell about this very subject. He was talking about ISIS, but he was also talking about the ashes of, of the red heifer being found. So I don't have any updates on that. But the first four verses here are saying the Levitical priesthood under Aaron, he was a man. So he had to go through this purification process before he could stand in the gap for you between God and man. Now, in contrast, he's going to make a contrast between Aaron and now the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 5, so Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, okay, here we have Psalm 2. Now we're back at Psalm 2 again. And here we have it quoted in Hebrews chapter 5. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. He also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And now we're in Psalm 110. So he's not after the order of the Levitical priesthood, but a very different one who was a priest, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication, with uh, vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now catch this verse. Called by God as a high priest. What does a high priest do? He stands in the gap to make intercession for your sins. That's what the high priest did on Yom Kippur once a year, the Day of Atonement. But here, he's a high priest, but not according to Levi or Aaron, but according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, who is this character? Let's go back to the book of Genesis chapter 14. The time of Abraham. Abraham had this discussion with the Lord about his nephew Lot living in Sodom and Gomorrah. He was really concerned about it. The Lord said he was on his way to take Sodom and Gomorrah out. And uh, Abraham started thinking, my nephew lives there. I'm concerned about him. He says, Lord, don't be angry with me, but suppose there's some righteous people that are living there in Sodom and Gomorrah. Are, are you going to kill them with the wicked? And the Lord says, no, I wouldn't do that. He started with 50. What if there were 50 people there? No, I wouldn't do it for 50. Well, Lord, what, what if there was only, and I'm going to cut it down. There's at least seven different steps here. Let's cut it down to 30. Let's just say there's 30 people living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Would you destroy the whole place for the sake of the 30? He says, no, I wouldn't do it for the sake of the 30. Well, he cuts it down to 25 and then 20. And he says, Lord, I'm only going to say this once more. Say there's only 10 people in Sodom and Gomorrah. If there were 10 there, would you spare the city? He said, yeah, for the sake of the 10. And he puts it in this form of a question to the Lord. He says, would not the Lord of the universe do that which is right? And Abraham knew that it was wrong that the wicked would be judged with the righteous. And so what had to happen was there wasn't 10, there was only eight. And so, or six, whatever it was, six or eight, it was uh, Abraham, his wife, and their uh, daughters and their, their husbands. And um, when they get there, they have to get Lot and his family out of town. The angels come to destroy. He says, look, you got to get out of here. And my point in all this is really leading up to something a lot of people say isn't significant about the timing of the rapture of the church. I'm one of those guys who thinks it's very important. Some say it's a non-issue. It's a big issue. Why? Because the judgment of God is the wrath of the Lamb. That's what's going to happen. And my question is Abraham's question. God, are you going to allow your bride, your church, to go through the wrath of the Lamb? That's quite a honeymoon. (laughs) And it's a hypothetical question that doesn't make sense. When I teach on the rapture, I say there has to be a rapture. There has to be a rapture. Because 
God has not appointed us to wrath, First Thessalonians chapter five, but to obtain salvation. So what's he gonna do when he brings judgment again upon this earth? Well, he's got a problem. He's gotta get the righteous out of Dodge, right? And matter of fact, they laughed it off. When Lot told his kids what was coming down, they said, you're crazy, old man. And the angels had to pull him out. And even Lot's wife, this famous verse from the New Testament, he said, remember Lot's wife, don't look back. And as we get closer to what's coming down right now, don't think about turning back, don't think about looking back. The Lord would say, remember Lot's wife. Well, what happened to Lot's wife? Well, she was turned into a pillar of salt. And whenever we go down by the Dead Sea, there's all kinds of pillars of salt. And our guide will say, there's Lot's wife right there. That's her, I'm pretty sure. Maybe it was that one over there. I don't know. But I, I, I say it lightly, but when you look at the parallels in Scripture, there's always that pattern. Without exception, the righteous being delivered before judgment. Take Noah. Noah had to get out before judgment could come. He took him up, and then he brought him back down. And it's the same with us. And I think to take any other position than the, the pre-trib uh, view, you you're, don't understand the grace of God and um, the importance of God allowing his church to be any part of his wrath or his judgment. So I'll just leave that with that. I'm talking about Melchizedek, right? Okay. So coming back, and he finally... Abraham finally rescues Lot after he'd been saved. Uh, he's been captured by these kings. Um, we find uh, verse 17, the king of Sodom went out to meet the, the, at the valley Shava, that is the king of the valley, after his return from the defeat of uh, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. So Melchizedek, the king of Salem. This is the first time we read about him here. He brought out bread and wine. So when we're up in the Teldan area, um, we talk about this story here because it's still farther north. That when Abraham was returning, he comes out and the king of Salem, this is the first reference to Jerusalem. And uh, he brings out bread and wine and he is the priest of the Most High God. So let's put it together. Who do we have here? We have a priest who's a king. And in the law, you couldn't have that. You're either one or the other. You're either a king or you were a priest. And, um, and he brings out bread and wine. Now just think about that. What does bread and wine make you think of? Communion, doesn't it? What we do in remembrance of who? So what we have here in Melchizedek is probably a Christophanes. It says he has no genealogy. He has neither father nor mother. So we have a very unique person here. We have somebody not after the tradition of a Levite, but after the order of Melchizedek, who had no beginning of days or end of days. So he's probably a Christophanes here. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, the God of heaven, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered our enemies into our hands, and that's where he gave a tithe of all. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high. I will take nothing from a thread or a sandal strap. You can keep that. Keep, I'm just gonna take my family. Except that what the young men have eaten, you can, you can have those things. And so, of course, we are, um, let's go back to, let's see, Psalm 2, as we're getting close to our time here. And I realize the story I told about Sodom and Gomorrah, Melchizedek, preceded um, the whole story of, of Lot being in Sodom. But let's go back and we'll finish up tonight in Psalm 2. And what, what have we learned so far? Well... Psalm 2 is a prophecy. It's a prophecy of the second coming of the Lord that culminates at the end of the tribulation period when the kings of the earth are gathered together against them. They will be destroyed by the wrath of the Lamb. This is the judgment of the Lord himself. 
also called the time of Jacob's trouble. We also learn in this chapter tonight, in verses 7 through 9, we have God speaking to God. Not his son, yes, his son, but um, equal with the father. And um, talking about sitting until he has made his enemies his, his footstool as we tied it in Psalm 110. We go to the book of Hebrews, which quotes both Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. And Hebrews lays out why Jesus has to be of a different order than a Levite. Not after Aaron, but after Melchizedek, who is a king and a priest. So what does it say in Revelation 20 on his robe? He's king of kings, right? But also lord of lords. But he's also a high priest, according to the book of Hebrews, who continually lives to pray for you and to pray for me. Now there's something that also you want to take home with you tonight. It's one thing that we pray for one another, and we, we need to. But you know the Lord continually lives to pray for you? Think about that. Revelation, uh, John 17, where he prays for you and he prays for me. All right, let's close it up. What should we do in light of all the information that we learned tonight? Heavy stuff, Dwight, coming down the line. If what you're saying is true, it is, and it will happen. Well, therefore, here we have the therefore. Here it is. All that we've learned tonight has a therefore attached to it. Therefore, be wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Seeking first the kingdom should be your priority. Everything else should be in second place. And all we need to be reminded of that how often? <laughs> every single day. Paul says, I get up and I have to die daily. I get up and my flesh wants to take over. And so you get up and you better have your devotions. I don't say that in a a condescending, lording over type way. You just better have it for your sake. You know, to realize that you have to die daily, that you still have a flesh, and um, be wise. Why be wise? Well, the Lord's getting ready to set up his kingdom. And um, if we're watching the stage being set for the second coming, then my question is how much closer is the rapture of the church that, that can't go through these things? Last, last week we were in Matthew 24, and the way it's going to be, the difference between the rapture and the second coming is when you read Matthew 24, life is normal. People are planning their vacations, getting married, going on a trip, and didn't know until it started to rain that judgment was really coming. One will be taken, one will be left behind. But that's certainly not a picture of the second coming of Christ. Because the second coming of Christ says, unless he returns, is the greatest tribulation the world has ever known. And unless he comes back, then no flesh will be saved. People, we're talking about two very different events. One is totally unexpected, like a thief in the night will be changed in that time, and we won't be thinking about the Lord's coming today. So if we're not thinking that, well, you know, it seems like an average Wednesday to me, you know what that means? Good sign for the rapture to take place. I'm at my time, and I wish I was totally at the end of my time. So be wise, you, you kings of the earth. It's an admonition to the rulers, but it's also an admonition to us. Kiss the son lest he be angry with you, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. And blessed are those who put their trust in him. I'm going to close with Isaiah chapter 64, one verse. I stumbled across it when I was looking at Isaiah 63. And I thought, what a great verse to end a Bible study with. Isaiah 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would come and rent, rent the heavens, that you would come down. What a great prayer. Oh, that you would come. Jesus said, you men of Galilee, the same Jesus as you see taken up, he's coming back again. That's what Psalm 2 is all about. When Jesus Christ comes back, and he says, in the meantime, sit here by my side until I make your enemies your footstool. And we're simply in the until then stage, and we are to be receiving the admonition that the Lord gave to his disciples. Remember Lot's wife. Don't forget, Don't, no looking back. You left the old man, remember when you were baptized? You were saying, I'm leaving it all behind, Lord. Straight ahead. No turning back, no looking back. 
but it's straightforward with you. Amen? Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word tonight for Psalm 2. Thank you that you're on your throne interceding for us as we close in prayer tonight. These are wonderful thoughts, Lord, that you care enough to lay it out uh, for us. We're so grateful for your grace, Lord. And um, teach us, Lord, as we finish Psalm 2. Teach us to be wise and to fall in love with you and to kiss the Son and, and uh, not stand in the place that, of those who are actually standing against you. Lord, just bless your people tonight. Thank you for your word for the Wednesday night Bible study. In Jesus' name, amen.